Falls here, and another episode of Thinking Through Autonomy is ready for you to curl up with. Today, we'll be talking about what it means to be a smart community, the relationship between economic development and being a smart community, the role of 5G in connecting technologies to communities, and fielding smart technology for your community, and really so much more than that. My guest is David Erie, Chief Technology Officer for the Center for Innovative Technology. The center works on behalf of the Commonwealth of Virginia, tackling activities that are important to economic development within the state. David's responsible for their strategic initiatives. Today's conversation was recorded on October 8th, 2019. Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap. Managing partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. David, welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy. We're glad to have you on the episode today. Yeah, thank you. Excited to be here. David, your portfolio at CIT really spans a diverse set of disciplines. And that includes smart cities, which is going to be the subject of much of our discussion today, first responder technology and intelligence analysis and cybersecurity. And all of this is aimed at creating a breakthrough in enterprise level innovation, which sounds like a, a pretty tall order. Now, when you sit down and you think about the definition of a breakthrough, what do you think about? What are you aiming for with your teams? Well, it is a, it is a tall order. Uh, uh, actually, it's a an exciting place to be, uh, so uh, I never get bored, I will say that. We come at it from the CIT perspective, and my perspective as well, with the lens of uh, economic development for the Commonwealth of Virginia. And so I, th I think, uh, of course, many, many technologies out there that we could look at. But what I really try to assess is uh, what's going to be important in a few years uh, from an economic development perspective for Virginia and are there ways that we can help position the Commonwealth to get there? And in that vein, do we tend to use the word breakthrough just a little bit too cavalierly, where we're labeling things as breakthroughs that maybe might not be? Well, you know, most uh, innovation is, is uh, incremental development. You, you know, I think the other term that maybe gets overused a lot is disruptive, right? And, uh, you know, there are a couple different aspects to that. One is, uh, the true technology breakthroughs, and and I think those tend to be less frequent than we imagine. Uh, you, you know, there's a, a lot, a long history of, of technologies, and people are generally building on what's gone before. Uh, a lot of what we talk about as disruptive uh, is really changes in business models, and so it's it's not so much about the underlying technology per se, but how it's employed, what are the incentives behind using it, uh, how it gets adopted. I'd almost call those more the cultural side of technology rather than the, uh, the technical side. Does that mean that if you're pursuing a breakthrough and you achieve that breakthrough, that necessarily for those communities or, or for that customer that leads to a financial windfall, or what other metrics kind of surround breakthrough when you talk in terms of economic development? You know, there's a, I use a slightly different set of metrics for innovation versus uh, economic development. Uh, the end goal is really uh, sustainable jobs, good paying jobs, uh, 
you know, positive contributions to the tax base and so forth. And there, there are, you know, a number of different uh, employers and industries that, that can do that. Uh, we tend to focus on technology-based companies with, with high growth potential. When I talk about innovation, I actually go back to a definition that's maybe 100 years old uh, from uh, the old uh, Bell Laboratories. Uh, and it talks about discovery, invention, and innovation. And so discovery is something you find in nature. Uh, invention is, uh, let's say, a prototype of a gizmo. Innovation is really when you can do something at scale and there's a market for it so that somebody's willing to buy uh, what you're producing. I really focus on that end of it because that ties directly to economic development. So if, if, uh, if there's a market for what you're doing and you can do it at scale, then the economic development will happen because you're addressing that market. David, you're based in Virginia, and as we open the show, uh, not too far away from Dulles Airport. And I'm just wondering, when you think about these breakthroughs, when you think about innovation, do you necessarily start looking out west first to Silicon Valley? Do you look for organically growing ideas and innovation? What does the portfolio look like in terms of where these ideas incubate and how, how they get to you eventually? Yeah, so innovation happens all over the place. You know, it does tend to be concentrated some around universities or, you know, around larger population areas, but uh, it happens everywhere. And uh, for CIT, uh, because Charter is primarily focused around Virginia, we look here first in, in, uh, in Virginia, in the region, for people who are willing to locate in Virginia, those, uh, you know, those types of things. And there's plenty of innovation going on here. Uh, uh, in fact, I, uh, when you talk about Silicon Valley, personal opinion is that it's way too expensive to try to do innovation there. It's hard to uh, you know, be able to afford to live and so forth. Much easier for the capital to move around. And so you know, we look for that mix of uh, uh, the kinds of things you hear about, workforce, uh, uh, good university partnerships, uh, you know, robust industry involvement, uh, uh, that kind of thing. When we do work for the federal government, and so some of the public safety work is uh, uh, funded by DHS, because those, that's a federal program, the scope is national and, and actually international. And in some of the accelerators that we've helped establish, uh, Mach 37, Smart City Works, uh, we also see a significant interest in participation, uh, deal flow from uh, across the country and, and from around the world. It depends a little bit on the situation, but our, our charter and our focus is uh, primarily the Commonwealth of Virginia. On the people side, you obviously need a highly talented team to achieve these breakthroughs. I'm just wondering if you look at the teams that you've led over the last several initiatives, what's the common theme? What binds this team together, you know, to say, hey, we're going to achieve something that most people find impossible. We're going to achieve something that makes a community much more different than what it is today. Is there a thread in these people that you work with? You know, I, I think uh, a lot of that is uh, a passion around the vision. Uh, you know, there's obviously people have different skill sets, but, uh, you know, we, we build teams. Uh, it takes, uh, uh, you know, as you say, a strong team to, to really uh, make innovation happen. Uh, and so there's, there's room for people with lots of different types of skills in that. But, you know, the one, the one thing is really that everybody has a passion and, and buys into that. It's hard to 
start at the end goal and say we're gonna we're gonna make this community better and it's gonna look like like this it's gonna look like Tyson's Corner or something part of the innovation process is that you don't know exactly what the end result will be and so a lot of you know particularly let's say in the smart community context a lot of what we do is to say we're gonna start wherever we can and work to make things better and the reason we're working to make things better is uh, you know lay out two or three goals well one is that recognizing that climate change is happening can we help communities be more resilient uh, recognizing that economic development is important can we make uh, a community a place where uh, you know the next generation and the generation beyond that would want to live and work because that's how you build a workforce uh, the, those types of goals but on a day-to-day -day basis any particular activity uh, is, is a little more nebulous in how it advances that, you know, so in some sense, we're kind of pathfinding what are the things that will take us uh, from where we are today to the next couple of steps uh, towards that longer term vision. We had just briefly touched on smart communities, and I'm just kind of wondering, what is a smart community? We use the term smart communities very consciously instead of uh, sort of the more, uh, I think, widely used smart cities kind of terminology. When we look at Virginia and you look at the demographics, uh, Virginia doesn't really have any large cities. We have very many medium-sized or smaller-sized communities, and we want very explicitly in, in our state action plan, in our goals, to have uh, the opportunity for the advantages of, of smart community work to be available to everybody in the Commonwealth. So that's really a key goal for us and uh, hence the terminology it kind of embodies uh, a lot more than just the single word and, and what does that mean you know I you know you can talk about a lot IOT sensors Internet of Things or, or connectivity or autonomous vehicles you know many different kinds of applications there tending towards a, a much simpler definition and that? that's a community putting in place a, a digital architecture that's going to improve the government services that are available in the community. That's a little more restrictive. Uh, it does focus on local kind of governmental entities, and it does explicitly call out uh, this digital infrastructure, which to me encompasses, you know, sort of at the base layer, broadband connectivity, how you deal with data, data analytics, and the privacy and the security aspects of that. And then the things you build on top of that foundation can vary from place to place. You know, in some places, uh, smart lighting, uh, energy efficient lighting, or smart parking is important. You know, if you're in involved in more agricultural areas, uh, the ability to do real-time data analytics on crop conditions and the the ability of machinery to operate autonomously is is actually much more of a focus. But they all build on that sort of underlying kind of basic architecture connectivity the ability to handle data, and the, the security of that data as you move forward. When we do talk about these smart communities, I see that there's passion from the governor in these initiatives. There's certainly your passion. There's passion from CIT. And I'm just, you know, maybe wondering from the 50,000-foot view of all this, what does it mean to, to the Commonwealth of Virginia? What is in it for the state? I can maybe understand on a community-to-community -community basis but as a state, what's what's the end goal? Yeah, so, and the, the ranking is sort of a, a an artifact, right? I mean, those, that's nice uh, when people recognize what you're doing, but that's that's 
clearly not the goal. You know, I, I think if if we look to the future, there are a couple of things that are, are happening. First of all, we're now in a global competitive environment. And so, you know, many industries, companies can choose to locate in a large number of places inside and outside the United States. From an economic development perspective, from a jobs perspective, we want them to be in Virginia. And so we want that to be an attractive place to be and, and to work. To do that, you need the workforce. And if you look where people are choosing to locate, uh, certainly the, the upcoming generations are expecting robust digital infrastructure. They're expecting a set of digital services. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's important as part of the economic environment. And I think the, the third thing is really the demographics. So uh, we look very carefully at where growth is happening across the state, where, the, let's say, the, uh, uh, the average age of a population on a county-by-county county basis. And, you know, the demographic shifts from more rural areas to more urban areas across the globe are pretty dramatic. In my, t- in my lifetime, should I live so long, we'll uh, go from 30% of the world's population being in urban areas to 70%. So something like half the world's population will move from rural areas to urban areas in my lifetime. You know, if I look in Virginia, we need to do something to change that dynamic, right? Uh, First of all, there are many, many people who uh, live in less populated areas because they like to live there. They're beautiful places. Uh, You know, the the natural beauty in Virginia is is phenomenal. People like... uh, you know, the ability to be in less crowded places and so forth. And we want to support that. And, you know, I think if you look at, uh, you know, the flip side of that, if you look at sort of the the traffic issues around, you know, the D.C. metropolitan area, you know, one way to address many of those issues is to let people not get, not be on the road so much. Right? So, so to the extent that we can establish more distributed work centers or the uh, to the extent that we can uh, make good paying employment opportunities available everywhere in the Commonwealth. That addresses so many problems. It uh, provides economic opportunity for people everywhere in the Commonwealth. It uh, addresses some of those infrastructure kinds of questions in the more densely populated areas. So it's just a win-win across the board. Those are the types of things that that are are critical if you look at uh, the economic health of Virginia 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now. So uh, that's, uh, that's kind of the motivation. I just want to put my arms a little bit more around the idea of a smart technology, a smart thing. And I suspect it could even be like a smart process. I'm just wondering, what is the yardstick you use when someone's sitting across the table and either trying to pitch you a smart technology or a community asks you to say, David, Please separate the smart technologies from the really dumb technologies that aren't going to help us. You know, what is what it what is smart invoke in David Erie? Yeah. So first of all, I come at it from a community perspective first. The tagline that we're using is community driven innovation. Uh, and so there again, there are lots of technologies that are out there, lots of lots of good companies, uh, uh, lots of high end technologies, but they they don't make sense unless they fit where a community is right now sitting across the table and what their priorities are. And so if you look at a number of communities uh, around Virginia, uh, in some cases they're maintaining their local government data on Excel spreadsheets or each department has its own way of managing the data uh, that it has access to. 
for communities like that, what may be the smart, the smartest thing that they could do is some sort of digital transition to put, you know, to cut across those silos, to to put that data on a platform that's accessible to everybody, to uh, look at the quality and the completeness of the data that they're working on, because that will allow them to make better decisions. Um, and, and we've seen uh, some great examples of this. Uh, Carlos Rivera is our chief data officer. He's done some work around uh, the opioid crisis in uh, a couple of our more rural communities and just collecting the data from various sources, putting it onto a common platform and making those results, uh, analytic results available back to the community leaders makes a huge difference. Allows them to direct and allocate resources uh, more appropriately to the community needs, allows them to make earlier interventions, you know, so just a very positive thing. If you look at uh, at the other end of the spectrum, right, so we have some some of the more advanced communities anywhere in the world, right, let's say Alexandria or, you know, uh, some of the places in Northern Virginia, and, you know, they're starting to think about, uh, you know, Fairfax County, for example, uh, is in the process of launching an autonomous shuttle. So, uh, you know, those kind of technologies, autonomous vehicles, uh, as an example, are much more appropriate to where they've all, they are, done the digital transformation, so they do have, you know, pretty robust data sets, they manage to, you know, data-informed types of decisions, and now they're starting to address some of these uh, wicked problems in the community, uh, in that case, uh, transportation-related issues. So it, it depends uh, uh, where community is. There's no cookie cutter. There's no one-size-fits-all. And that's part of our function at CIT is we can help a community understand what those possibilities are, what those limitations are, and then help find technologies and technology providers that are appropriate to their particular situation. And I definitely want to explore that in depth in just a little bit. I do, though, find it really fascinating when we talk about smart communities, we tie it with the idea of economic development. And intuitively, I can see, David, how if I have a smart community that at the end of the process someplace, my economic development metrics is going to be a whole lot different at the end of the process than when I start it. And I'm just wondering in your experience, when you take a look at the relationship between a smart community and the initiatives they take and the economic development they experience, is this a linear relationship? Is it exponential? What, what's that relationship? It, and do you have to tell these communities, be patient, the development is coming, or is this something they see right up front? I would think of it more like a step function in, in maybe three or four steps where there's sort of rapid improvement in the, the uh, types of services and uh, hopefully in the related economic development. So we talked briefly already about, you know, the first step perhaps being that digital transformation. So uh, understanding data assets and managing data assets. We've seen there are plenty of examples from around the country that, you know, it certainly helps uh, uh, a local government run more efficiently, uh, run more seamlessly, it improves citizen experience uh, with the government, and it has unexpected side effects. So, you know, people are are finding relationships between the data that they hadn't, hadn't expected otherwise. And for example, uh, one of the communities that we're working with, if you look at, uh, you know, some of the data that they collect now about, let's say, abandoned vehicles or neighbor complaints or 
police uh, incident reports. You know, if you put those kind of indicators together, uh, maybe maybe that points to places where additional social services would make a difference in somebody's life, perhaps to intervene in a place where, you know, there's an opioid addiction concern and some of these secondary activities are happening. You know, I think that's kind of the first step function is that improved efficiency in just in government services and, and the ability to have some offshoots there. The second step, I would say, is that there are some proven technologies that have specific positive returns on investment for the community investment. Uh, and so if you look at smart street lighting, if you look at uh, the smart parking kinds of things, there there are immediate, uh, you know, short-term realizable returns on investment there, reduced operating costs for the community. And so there's, when you make that transition, there's, there's uh, again, rapid benefit to, to be perceived there. You know, I think the third step, and we're just starting now to see this in some places across the U.S., and we're uh, striving to get here for Virginia, is when you start seeing integrated government services across all of the various functions. So when uh, transportation and energy consumption and, and those kinds of things start to operate more efficiently as a whole, citizen services, uh, you know, the ability to look on your phone and find uh, real-time information about you know, not just traffic, but can I get to my destination faster if I take the metro than if I drive? You know, take a scooter versus hailing a, a, a cab. You know, so that's that's kind of that third step. And ultimately, I think the goal then is uh, those communities that make those transition will be the places where people in the next generation and the generation beyond that will want to live. Uh, so there are you know, kind of on the negative side, there are places where the brain drain, where the population impact of kids moving out after high school is so significant that they're, you know, they may not be places in, in 10 years if they do nothing. And so that ultimate longer term vision is, is uh, creating many places, in our case throughout Virginia, where people can choose how they want to live and we'll have those opportunities to do that uh, uh, economically, educationally, uh, and, and all the support services that you would expect. David, I suspect that you have probably sat through hundreds of meetings with dozens and dozens of communities, and part of the conversation maybe went like this. We have all of these pressures on us as a community. How do we prioritize this smart community against everything else that we're being asked to do? How do you start answering that and helping community leaders put their arms around a problem so that they agree this is the problem set that they want to attack? You know, again, we've already spoken a little bit about uh, where is a community right now. We're starting to talk about what I'm calling a, a digital readiness workshop, you know, for communities that have not done as much of that. Uh, do you as a community understand what data you have? Uh, is there somebody on the local government staff whose job is to manage the data. Do you know where it is? You know, are you running it on your own computers or is it in the cloud somewhere? Basic questions like that clearly makes it evident to people, you know, are they ready to do a digital transformation? Are they well beyond that, ready to worry about 5G on the light poles or not? Uh, so it's really starting where a community is today and many communities have a pretty good idea of what they would like, what they think their strengths are, how they would like their character to be. 
Uh, we're working fairly uh, extensively with uh, Stafford County right now. And I was going to ask you uh, about that. Yeah. I've read and all so about they're, that. They're, they're having a, a set of town hall meetings there. We work with uh, John Holden, who's the economic development uh, person there. And, you know, his question to the town hall meetings is, is what what is Stafford County? You know, what do you want it to be? And in that case, it looks, um, you know, some of the answers seem to be, uh, you know, they, they like some of the high-tech things. Many people uh, uh, work in high-tech industries and commute. There's a pretty extensive, uh, uh, actually, sports tourism that comes into the area. And then there's a historical character to the area as well that they would like to preserve. And so that you look at those kind of top-level ideas about how people are thinking about their own communities, and that, that gives you a whole lot of information about what those priorities are. So that's a piece of it, primarily starting with where people are. The other thing that I found is that in a lot of ways taking the first step is difficult and part of what uh, I try to do is is uh, say look you know I can I can provide a little bit of funding we can reduce some of the cost risk associated with that. Let's just take a first step let's figure out I mean al- almost anything in that range you know, you know it's uh, because of the cultural issues associated with it, right? I mean, uh, people are generally very busy in their day jobs, right? There's, there's uh, when you're dealing with public tax dollars and spending tax dollars, there's a, a risk aversion that goes with that. Many people are entrenched in the way that they've done things for, for a long time. Uh, and, and so there's this whole change management kind of discussion. How do you bring, uh, you know, how, how does the, leadership in a community bring the rest of their community along as they buy into change. And so it's really, you know, again, I mean, we're, we're now not talking about technology at all. We're talking about how do you communicate to the people who live in your area? How do you tell them about the types of changes you think would be good? And how do you get their buy-in to that? And certainly the uh, introduction of autonomous uh, vehicles, uh, both in Virginia and, you know, across the country is, uh, it's a, uh, a major case study in that. I just read an article, I think, last week where Silicon Valley's decided they don't actually want to be the guinea pigs for autonomous vehicles on the public streets, uh, even though many, many parts of the technology come from there. So it's like, hmm, okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so I, I think that that whole side of things, which has nothing nothing specifically to do with the technology, is, is fascinating as well as just what's the, what are the technology priorities? What are the, what are the, uh, community priorities for development. And that will probably kill several RFPs that some of the large infrastructure providers out in the Bay Area have put out for autonomous vehicles and vehicle lanes. So that's another story. But let (laughs) let me just get back to Stafford, Virginia. As I understand it, there was an RFP process that closed in August. I haven't seen if the selectees have been announced yet, the awardees. But I'm just wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about that pilot in Stafford, the mechanics of the process, you know, from the the time someone approached you and said, hey, we'd like to do this in our community, to the time that you sat down, you said, well, we've got a bunch of uh, applications that that we have to take a look at and responses. What does that process look like for the community that jumps and takes that first step? You know, Stafford County is a pretty amazing place that a city the size of a county would just so openly embrace uh, notions of a smart community that we've talked about. And they've been fantastic to work with from the, uh, 
just just up and down the entire uh, county staff. Uh, it, it's been a really fantastic experience. For me, that started uh, uh, actually. Uh, Virginia does uh, an annual conference called COVIDs, the Commonwealth of Virginia IT Summit, uh, every uh, every year in uh, September. And so, September a year ago was the first time that I actually met uh, Mike Cannon, who's the Chief Technology Officer for Stafford. And uh, Mike said, "Hey, we're uh, you know we're thinking about doing this smart town center thing, uh, and you're you're going around talking about smart communities. Can you help us out?" And so, uh, so it's now been just over a year. Uh, uh, we just did the uh, this year's version of COVID a month ago, and it, it was kind of a one-year report card. And it's uh, pretty amazing uh, how far uh, that's come in a year. Uh, uh, also, ran a panel last week at the Smart City. Council in their uh, Smart Cities Week DC, and uh, so it's it's been pretty phenomenal progress in a year. So here's um, you know your question around the process. In the end, Stafford County is going to go out, and they'll issue an RFP uh, probably next spring sometime that they will evaluate the responses and they will make the selections on somebody who's going to build a set of buildings for them on the land that they have. Uh, allocated to their smart town center. And so the question to us was, well, how do you make that smart? So, uh, uh, you know, we've had, we had a number of conversations, uh, the types of conversations I just mentioned to you, you know, how do you conceive your community? Uh, what are your goals, you know, uh, uh, as, a, as a community? Uh, okay, you'd like more opportunity for the people who live in this area to work in this area and to do their recreational activities in this area. You want to attract outside tourism and so on. You know, that's that was kind of the starting point. Uh, and then there are two processes that are going on in parallel. So one is that we, um, we CIT went out and engaged with a company called OST. Uh, Dr. Indu Singh uh, at OST is a uh, sort of a world-recognized uh, leader in smart communities. He's been doing it for a very long time, wrote the books, uh, and we work uh, competitive uh, assessment there. Uh, they were selected as a result of that process, and we've worked very closely with them and with Stafford County, uh, getting ready to publish the first document, which is a vision, strategy, and operations report. And that's, you know, here's what it looks like. Uh, here's, uh, you know, not just, uh, you know, life will be wonderful and, and the streetlights will be efficient, but, you know, how are you going to operate this place on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, what do the economics of that look like? How are you going to maintain it over 50 years or something like that? You know, are there provisions that you need to make so that, you know, some examples we've seen in other places, the landlord raises the rents, the local grocery store can no longer afford to operate there, so they move out. Suddenly a robust town center has no grocery store, that's a problem because now it's less attractive to the population. And so are there ways to you know, address those kind of issues? So a very broad ranging, complex set of things. The other piece that you mentioned in parallel with that is um, we know that there are many innovators. We work with a number of them through, through our Smart City Works uh, actuator that we work with uh, in other places that are doing what I'll call component solutions or pieces of the puzzle. One, one company we work with has a great community engagement platform. Uh, another company has a, a great infrastructure protection thing to uh, protect uh, building infrastructure from cyber attack. A third company uh, is parking type solutions, right? And so those are 
those are smaller companies. They're innovators. They're not companies that would be able to respond to an RFP that says, build us a new town center. But we would certainly like to see them as part of the solution, or at least have opportunities for those kind of smaller innovative companies to be part of the solution. I think that's the other piece that you referred to. Uh, there, the notion is more that we will combine those inputs into what I'll call an innovation library. And for the people who are the prime contractors helping to build the smart town center in Stafford, you know, we'll, we'll see whether the RFPs actually have language to this effect, but we would encourage Stafford and those prime contractors to say, oh, and by the way, hey, if you need a great solution for community engagement, why don't you check out this company? Because we've worked with them, we know them, they're a Virginia company, and we think they can do great things for you. You know, through that mechanism, we hope to provide direct opportunities for these smaller innovators to actually be able to play in, in what should be a fantastic, uh, you know, not just place to live and work, but a place where ongoing innovation and experimentation can happen. We're, we're right now working to help uh, suggest what some of the specifications could be in the Stafford RFP, and so uh, they will take that into consideration and uh, decide what part of those or how to include those in the actual uh, procurement documents that they go out with uh, next spring. A lot of activity going on there, uh, uh, and we're engaging with them in a couple other ways around sort of specific innovation areas, uh, public safety, for example. It's just a very exciting thing uh, to be involved with. You know, it's uh, not very often you get a chance to uh, to think about building a whole place from, from you know, literally 25 acres of dirt uh, and something that could be there for the next 50 years. So I, I think everybody is, uh, uh, is very excited about it and very engaged in trying to think through all those ramifications and make it the, the best place that it could possibly be. That's really great, David. I know Stafford well, and I'll be really excited to watch its progress over the next several years. One of the things that I want to make sure that we don't fall into as we have this discussion is the trap that smart communities, that's a new concept, smart cities, that's a new concept. But in fact, it goes back a couple decades in at least one case. And I'm just kind of wondering about the lessons learned from communities that have tried this in the past. I know you talk about two cities. One is Songdo in South Korea, and the other one is Mastar in the Emirates right outside of the Abu Dhabi airport. I think it's fair to say that they have not lived up to the expectations of the people who designed them. What are the lessons that communities can take from these two experiments and maybe not go down that same path. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, a third one that's also top of mind now, by the way, is, is Toronto and the concepts that uh, Google sort of brought there and have tried to implement. Yeah, and I think uh, each one has kind of a, a slightly different lesson. You know, cer certainly um, think about places that have been more successful, like Singapore, uh, for example, right? I mean, so part of this is, is back to the whole cultural question. How does it come about? And Singapore, as an example, has a centralized, it's a, it's a small contained area. It's a fairly strong centralized government. Uh, they can uh, sort of direct things to happen and they happen fairly efficiently. They have the resources to make, make that happen. And, and they understand their own culture well enough to, uh, to pull that off. You know, and I, I think you, you again have to look at the specifics of each place. Uh, uh, I was in Singapore last year and asked our Uber driver about, you know, how the, how the place was. And he said, well, you know, it's, uh, 
to own a car in Singapore first before you buy the car, you have to buy a, a license to own a car for about fifty thousand dollars. And that's one of the ways they control the amount of traffic in, in the downtown. That areas. would control my uh, buying decisions pretty uh, well. <laughs> yeah, mine too, right? <laughs> and so, but, you know, and so you say, wow, how do they, you know, great public transportation system? How do they get people to take public transportation so much? Uh, you know, the robust uh, ride hailing services. Well, that's part of the way they do it. And if I think about would that work in the U.S.? The answer is, is heck no. You know, uh, I guess maybe it works for football tickets, but uh, yeah, not for not necessarily for people driving. Well, I don't know if the Redskins uh, quite have that problem this week. Uh, <laughs> I, I, was, hence, I wasn't going to call them. Out. I wasn't going to call them out by name, but hence uh, yeah, I digress yeah. <laughs> with the team that has an zero and five right now. I'm so sorry yeah, uh, uh, to my audience that expects a serious discussion. I just had to go down that way. <laughs> You know, if you, if you look at Toronto, that project is really foundered on privacy issues, right? And so I think Google's sort of one of the names that's up there in the conversation about, uh, you know, trying to own everybody's data, private data, and use it for their own purposes. And that has met with significant opposition in Toronto and has caused that project to have, uh, you know, significant difficulties. And we're taking that extremely seriously. I think... Uh, uh, although it probably won't happen this year in Congress, uh, you know, there's discussion at the federal level of privacy laws. Certainly in Europe and California, there are existing laws, and we're talking very seriously in Virginia about what are those responsibilities, how do we implement that. Again, working very closely with uh, Carlos Rivera, who's our chief data officer, who's in the process of developing a data governance policy. So what does that mean? How do you do information sharing? When can you share data? When can't you? Uh, you know, very complex subject. Certainly the lessons of uh, Baltimore and Atlanta uh, and other many other places around ransomware. So how do you secure the data? And then I think the, you know, the ones you mentioned, Songdu and, and uh, in Abu Dhabi, actually I heard the other day, the one in Abu Dhabi is, is, is starting to see some success now finally. But, uh, you know, I think there it was a kind of a top-down vision. And my impression was it was not well communicated to the population. Suddenly there were these places that were very different than what people were used to, and it was very hard for people to understand what was going on there. So to me, those those two examples really get back to this whole thing about community engagement, about community buy-in. Uh, how do you introduce change in a way that, that people can accept and embrace and, and uh, you know really make part of their lives? And it, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing. Sure, David. We have been really lucky on this show over the course of the last year to really have some fine experts who've engaged the audience on smart communities. And I, I personally, I'm, I'm a believer in a smart community. But as of late, as I work with more and more organizations involved with autonomous vehicles, you know, whether they're tracked, whether they fly, you name it, whether they're, they're that bus on the dedicated busway, I'm finding that in certain circles that these vehicle makers, I'll call that generically, are really striving to have a self-sufficient vehicle and to have a self-sufficient experience for that rider, where essentially they're saying, we don't need this city to be wired, we don't need it to be connected, because this vehicle will be self-sufficient. You know, we don't 
really necessarily need to have stoplights that are coordinated. We don't need we don't even need city lighting because we're going to put in vision systems that are really <laughs> independent of street lights. And so I'm wondering, do you see that same kind of tension developing between the community leaders who are trying to connect the city and their services and some of the vendors who say, no, 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 our paradigm is self-sufficiency. We don't want to be connected to anything. Are you seeing that? How, how does that affect your business? Yeah, I, I think there's um, that that kind of tension is real. And, and I think it's more than in just autonomous vehicles. You see that in, in, in a number of uh, verticals. And again, uh, you know, the, the Google example in Toronto, right? I mean, any, any of these technologies about data ownership and who owns the data and so forth. Part of the, I think part of the issue with autonomous vehicles in particular is that the kind of the infrastructure supporting them has not been standardized yet. And so, if, you know, let's say you think back 100 and 125 years uh, when automobiles were first being introduced and, you know, do you drive on the left side of the road or the right side of the road? And uh, do you have to put, uh, you know, headlights on and brake lights on or not? You know, do you need a windshield? And so I think in the early development like that, people, developers make the best decisions they can for how they foresee the future going. Over time, that's, that infrastructure will, will standardize. And, and so, you know, for, for an autonomous vehicle developer right now, given that state of affairs, it's, it's not a bad decision in my mind to say, well, you know, we, we don't know what we can rely on. You know, we don't know if, uh, if we uh, make our vehicle follow the painted lines on the road. You know, some communities will paint those and maintain those. Others won't. You know, so what, what, are, the, what are the cues? What are the mechanisms we can rely on in the environment? But over, over time, uh, it will certainly be, there'll be standards for how, uh, and, and those will evolve, I think, uh, you know, based on different experiences in different places. You know, how, how do vehicles deal with intersections? You know, is there signaling? Is there, um, is there electronic signaling that doesn't have lights hanging over the middle of the intersection? How do you deal with uh, emergency vehicles? You know, uh, uh, can they tell you that they're coming up behind you? Uh, you know, so many, many questions like that. If you talk about air, you know, who, uh, who controls the airspace for drones to operate in? How do you schedule your Amazon looking to make deliveries, how do you schedule your your slice of the airspace and make sure you don't hit other things? And some of that will end up in the courts, right? I mean, we've, we've seen a couple examples already of pedestrians being killed by autonomous vehicles. The liability around that, that whole set of regulatory questions will, will evolve over time. I, I think it's just the reality that as a, as a developer, as an innovator, you kind of have to find your way through that unknown future jungle uh, as best you can. David, I just want to cover two more topics with you as we're getting close to the end of the show today. One of those deals specifically with the state of Virginia. Essentially, there are maybe two different Virginias. There's Northern Virginia, where I lived for about 15 years. Then there's Richmond. There are the rural areas. Then there's Hampton Roads. And certainly one of the criticisms that you have to be sensitive to is the fact that the perception across most of the state of Virginia is Northern Virginia is getting everything. How come the technology, the money, fill in the blank, 
Why is that concentrated in Northern Virginia? And I'm just wondering, when you work with the governor, when you work with state agencies, how do you fight that perception that a smart community can benefit everybody? It's not just going to be stuck around the Metro Washington, D.C. area. This technology, you know, is, is really a statewide kind of need as opposed to a Northern Virginia need. Yeah, so I, I think you need to separate kind of the perception, which I think is based on, you know, observation of activity versus the state efforts and where the state resources go and so forth. Uh, from the governor on down, I mean, the, the governor has been very clear and repeatedly, and the state is putting a lot of resources right now into universal broadband connectivity, right? And so, you know, uh, it's it's not Northern Virginia that has the biggest need for additional broadband connectivity. It's very clearly the underserved areas uh, around the Commonwealth, you, you know, places that that has not reached yet. And that's, that's the number one enabler for a smart community, you know, if, uh, you know, any of those things that you want to talk about require good broadband connectivity. You know, the very first step is, all right, we're going to make sure that there's universal broadband, that anybody in the Commonwealth who wants to can have access to affordable broadband. In some cases, I'm coming along right behind that and saying, oh, and by the way, what are you going to do next, right? What capabilities are you going to build on top of that? Uh, I think if you look at for example, uh, Go Virginia is one where the legislature has divided the Commonwealth into regions and they use uh, funding formulas to ensure that each region gets a, a share of the investment. And I would also say, you know, we, we track, we CIT track very carefully uh, based on those types of regions uh, where our investments go and, and think you'd be surprised that the, the majority do not go to Northern Virginia, they go to other parts of the Commonwealth. And so I think if you look at the data about where the Commonwealth is actually focusing its efforts and putting its resources, it's, it's very different than the perception uh, that everything's happening in Northern Virginia. You know, if I look at the, the conversations that I'm having right now around smart communities, uh, uh, they're all over. Right. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned some of those. I mean, we're talking to people in, in Norfolk and Hampton Roads and Richmond, Stafford County, obviously, Caroline County, Danville, uh, on, on out to, uh, uh, you know, Wise County and so forth. You know, I think part of what you do see is that there's certainly a lot of investment dollars in, uh, you know, from private, private investment and real estate companies and people like Amazon, right? I mean, so there's certainly a lot of outside investment that goes on around metropolitan areas in general. Uh, you see that everywhere in the country. Uh, but that's, to me, that's different than the focus of the state resources and the state efforts, which are to uh, really explicitly, with support from the governor on down, saying this this needs to be opportunity that's available to, to uh, every single person in the Commonwealth. And I think that really actually, that does set uh, Virginia apart in many ways. And finally, David, I want to just maybe wrap up this conversation with the discussion on 5G. You mentioned that you were at COVID's 2019, and I happened to see that you moderated a panel on smart communities that focused on 5G technology. And I'm hearing a couple different messages. Earlier in the conversation, we talked about how important it was for a city 
to understand how it handles data. So I can be a smarter community if I don't have everything on a Excel spreadsheet with 65,000 rows filled up that only the maker understands how the heck the spreadsheet works. And clearly that exercise doesn't involve 5G. We have the 5G vendors who certainly are making it clear that unless your community is wired with 5G, you'll never be smart. Obviously the truth falls somewhere in between. I'm wondering what are the takeaways from that panel that you uh, recently moderated? Yeah, so, you know, I would say that broadband uh, generally is, is is sort of the foundational layer, right? And, you know, it's just said that if you don't have connection, it's it's really hard to do much of anything in, in the smart community space uh, or in, in economic development uh, these days. So broadband is critical. 5G is, uh, you know, clearly the next uh, generation of wireless broadband. If you think about how that rolls out, how that interacts with communities, it will coexist with uh, current wireless capabilities for, for a good while. 5G's characteristic, it, it's what they call small cell, so it's smaller coverage areas. So, you know, for, for a good while, I think it will make most sense in areas that have needs for, for very high bandwidth. But that, you know, many of the capabilities of smart communities that we've talked about are you know, as long as you have some some access to broadband, you can you can continue to build those. There are some specific things, and you mentioned autonomous vehicles. So I think uh, as we get more connection vehicle to infrastructure that understand better how that interaction needs to work, uh, 5G will be critical for that. I think as we move into again over time into a world where network traffic, even these days, most network traffic is computers talking to other computers, it's not people talking to people, and it's not even people talking to computers, uh, but computers talking to each other. You know, as, as those number of devices explodes, as the number of IoT devices out there explode, and we need to manage those better, that need for uh, increased bandwidth continue to grow, and so 5, 5G is, will play an important part there. It's also, you know, I think as you look at consumer experience, right? So if you're in a household where a number of different people each want to stream their own videos, uh, you know, there's certainly a, a role for that on the uh, consumer side as well. So I guess in, in summary, I would say, I think it's an important next step in the evolution of wireless broadband. It will, in fact, provide capabilities that are, are important and will become increasingly important. But I don't think it will be a universal mechanism for a good long while. And I don't think uh, the lack of 5G shouldn't slow down the evolution of smart communities. So, you know, you can still work and build a community, incorporate many of those elements, even just with sort of the, the current wireless infrastructure that's that's there. We work very closely with uh, some of those providers, and uh, both uh, in general on the wireless side and uh, on the public safety side, and I think is is indeed very important. With that, David. I just want to bring this episode to a close and thank you so much for being a fabulous guest. Uh, it's been, been my pleasure. Yeah, it's a great conversation.